Мамой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the fifth and final event for Nature's Revenge, Ecology, Animals, and Waste in Eurasia, the Spring 2021 Speaker Series at the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. If you missed one of the interviews, or if you want to hear the entire series, go to www.ucis.pit.edu slash crease, that's C-R-E-E-S. Like elsewhere, there's a growing environmental movement in Russia. Activists are not only concerned about the larger issues like climate change, but local ones, the preservation and development of ecologically sustainable urban and rural space, industrial waste and carbon pollution, and the human footprint on nature. And like other political movements in Russia, activists risk arrest, repression, and marginalization. To get a better picture of environmental activism, its focus, goals, and tactics, I talked to Konstantin Fokin and Angelina Davidova. Angelina Davidova is an expert on international and Russian climate and environmental policies, civil society movements, and media. She is a director of the St. Petersburg-based NGO Office of Environmental Information. She is also an environmental and climate journalist and regularly contributes to Russian and international media. Davidova has also served as an observer with the UN climate negotiations since 2008 and is a member of the Global Reference Group and World Future Council. Konstantin Fokin is an entrepreneur, the CEO of Russian National Business Angels Association, and a climate and environmental activist with Extinction Rebellion. Since 2016, He's led or carried out more than 150 street actions, four hunger strikes, and has been arrested 19 times. That has resulted in seven jail sentences, totaling 81 days. Here's Konstantin Fokin and Angelina Davidova. Angelina, Konstantin, um, Angelina, I thought we'd start with you and just have you briefly introduce the focus of your work and interest in environmental issues. Um, thank you, Sean, and uh, thank you for inviting me and for having me here. Um, so, as you already mentioned, I'm based in Russia. I actually live in St. Petersburg, but at this very moment, I'm in uh, Western Siberia in the city of Hanty, Mansisk, where I'm giving a few lectures and also I'll speak about um global and Russian climate agenda and climate politics tomorrow, oh no, the day after tomorrow. Um, well, I'm, um, um, I do quite a number of things in, in life, most of which are um, concentrated around areas of climate, climate policies, um, civil society movements, 
um, climate and environmental journalism and communication. So around, yeah, those areas. And I've been an active member in the Russian climate community for the last maybe 15 years or so. Uh, yeah, I've been, uh, as you also mentioned, I've been actively involved in the UNFCCC process as an observer. I work a lot with the Russian civil society and, um, yeah, I myself, I'm a journalist and I'm a lecturer and I'm a public speaker on those topics. And Constantine, how about you? What What is the focus of your work in activism and environmentalism? Uh, sorry, I'll try to make it short. Um, but, um very kind of catchy career. I was an entrepreneur for about 10 years and public servant. I got MBA from leading UK University, went back to Russia, mostly public service again, city of Moscow government. I finished my, my career there as a chief innovation officer for, for, for the city of Moscow just five years ago. Mm. Uh, over time, you you tend to see kind of oh well, I was a dropout uh, from the Indiana University in in, in the states. Yeah, it, it was kind of a few years ago. <laughs> uh, I I decided that it was time not to sit comfortably in the U.S. Uh, but go back to Russia and and change the country. Over time, you tend to see kind of bigger picture. It's number one change that happens to everyone. Uh, number two things uh, that happens not to everyone, but to, to some people, you tend to take more responsibility for what's happening around you. So that's uh, two kind of trends um, that clashed within me. And I decided I, I, I need to understand first uh, what, what kind of challenges we face as a humanity and take responsibility for whatever I think I can be most useful. And it, it happened to be like ecological crisis. I, I'm, I'm normally saying say not climate crisis, but ecological crisis. Yeah, it was, yeah, a long story. Yeah. What drew you to that, though, as opposed to something else uh, in, in devoting your activism? What, what about the ecological crisis that, that attracted you or pulled you in? Pro probably it's a mix. Uh, it's a very practical issue. Because we need to find a solution how to, how to live with, uh, with, with, with yeah in balance with with the nature yeah there is a lot of kind of practical things uh, how to do it and it's a kind of moral challenge and moral issue probably dilemma if we don't do it we we, we screw basically next generation or even uh, right now kind of our neighbors in Africa and Asia in 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 the places where we face the consequences of the climate crisis first and being not the most responsible for, for, for the origin of the, of the crisis. So it's kind of a good combination for me of moral um, position and practical challenge. Um, probably just an occasion I tend to read more books on, on uh, ecology, first being uh, limits to growth a few years ago. And it started off uh, with uh, reading and long reading this. And being by, by nature protective, if I did, uh, take responsibility of something, I, I tend to um, go out and up. Angelina, for you too, you said you've been involved in this for 15 years now. So you're in some cases, a we're ahead of the curve in ter terms of this issue and 
in in modern post-Soviet Russia. What drew you into your interest into in ecology in the ecological crisis? Well, I started my career as a journalist, but then I was writing mostly about economic issues. And um, I believe after about four or five years of my working experience, I realized um, I want to see something else outside of it and I want to learn something else. I also want to do something else. So I also, just like Constantine, I went to, on a number of international programs and um, I did a few fellowships in England and um, I spent uh, four months in Oxford at the Reuters Foundation um, Fellowship. And, um, and then I came back to Russia and I thought, okay, maybe um, maybe it's right to try to try something else. And then I um, entered the non-governmental sector and I started working for an NGO, which was um, developing cooperation between civil societies in Russia and the European Union. And then gradually, after a few months, um, I got um, offers, well, we got offers of a number of environmental pro projects. And one of those projects was called Moving Baltic Sea. And um, the idea was that a sail ship would go from um, Germany, uh, Kreisfeld in the north of Germany, uh, along the southern coast of the Baltic Sea and then the Gulf of Finland. And then in every country and in every port city, there would be a festival uh, dedicated both to culture and environmental issues. And I was the main organizer of that festival in St. Petersburg. And this is also how climate change came to me because the organizers were also trying to uh, ask us to do something and to organize maybe a panel about climate change. So I had to look out for Russian experts on climate change and then organize a talk. And this is how I get to meet them. And then following this wonderful festival and that uh, great sales ship, uh, which, as I sometimes say, I brought to St. Petersburg. <laughs> um, yeah, I got invited to more and more youth trainings on climate change. One of them was organized by Friends of the Earth Europe uh, in Sweden, in the south of Sweden, in a place which was called Hör, which is very difficult to pronounce. And we were living in tents and we were eating vegan food and we were learning a lot about how the UNFCCC functions what activists can do there, uh, how do you do lobbying there, how do you do journalism there. And then following the training, in a couple of months, I went to my first uh, UN climate conference as an observer. Uh, I got to meet all the uh, Russian experts on the topic and I established contacts with them and I started working with them. But then after a few years, I also realized that me being a... Um, um, an expert and me being um, like a facilitator, someone who talks to people, someone who gets people connected and organizes events. I was still lacking journalism. I was still lacking um, an opportunity to write about that. So I decided maybe I could do journalism again. I could write again. And then I started writing again. And um, so this is uh, how it all came out. And I'm um, I'm writing now for a number of media outlets. You've mentioned some of them. I will be launching my uh, podcast in late April, early May. Yeah, this is also a climate-related podcast where I speak to a number of experts from Russia, but also not only from Russia, but also from other countries. And uh, yeah, so so probably that's that's the story. So you know the the ecological issues in Russia are so broad, you know, because of the the topography of the country is complex, the the different regions, the different types of uh, potential ecological crises. So, uh, in your assessment, Angelina, what are some of the uh, the ones that you find are most crucial? 
Um, well, I would differentiate here between the ones which are considered to be important environmental challenges and the ones which attract most of public attention because they don't they're not always the same uh, causes and the same kind of challenges. Uh, from the ones um, most important, I would certainly say um, climate change and negative consequences of climate change, including the ones which have global significance for the world, like the Arctic or melting permafrost or wildfires in Siberia, which you can already see now for the last few years. Um, I would also say, um, uh, well, in Russian, we call that um, accumulated environmental damage. I believe it's something which you call in English, well, you got to help me here, Sean. It's like, say, an old abandoned industrial facility, which is not working anymore, but there's still a lot of industrial waste out there, which has to be dealt with. It's like super fund. It's something with the super fund used to deal with in the U.S. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yes. I don't know what the proper English is because I don't know this lexicon very well. But yeah. Right. So because in many ways, um, as you probably know, the post-Soviet uh, Russian industry uh, has collapsed in many areas around the country. And even some of the closed industrial facilities, they're still dangerous from the environmental and even chemical point of view. So dealing with that, I would also say, is, is a big issue. Then um, issue number three is, well, certainly waste and waste management. Uh, until recently, 95% of all household waste uh, would be going to landfills, which are overfilled at the moment. So there's an ongoing uh, waste reform, uh, which is taking place too slow and also um, um, with not very good results as of now. But yeah, so waste. Uh, number four, I would say uh, everything connected with urban development, because even though uh, Russia's population in general is declining, Russian urban population is increasing. And many people all over the country are moving from smaller cities to larger cities. And um, that means more construction. That means uh, more destruction of green zones and areas, more unsustainable construction, also high-rise houses. And um, yeah, this, yeah. So I would say probably this once. Now, which of these problems attract most of public attention and activism? From my experience, uh, those would be super hyper local environmental problems. And those would be um, waste, uh, air quality, water quality, and also green areas, like green urban areas and um, well, sustainable I would say urban development in general. So those are the environmental problems that attract most of public attention from from my experience. And Constantine, how about for you? What are some of the key issues uh, you would point to, and even some of the ones your your activism is involved with? Uh, I think Angelina has been excellent in uh, specifying what's happening in Russia. Um, she's an expert. But, uh, but yeah, but, but in my take, uh, number one problem uh, in environment in Russia is um, it's totally different. Uh, I, I mean that number one problem in environment in Russia is very limited understanding that nature is not unlimited. When we have protest, when we have kind of some kind of government action, it, it, it's normally moving the stuff around. Uh, we will close the dump in one place, open it in, uh, in another place. So if uh, people protest here, we move the dump in, in neighboring region. 
uh, we don't see the picture in totality. We decrease the consumption of electricity in one bubble, in one lump, at the same time grow the number of lumps. So we, we don't see the big picture, very limited number of people, even in the government, understand that, and the consequences. Um, it, it's understandable why it's happening, especially in Russia, because the country is big, you don't see uh, directly in, in, in most cases. But that's, that's how uh, I, I see the picture, and that's, that's, that's my focus, basically. We need to grow the understanding. That, that's really interesting, actually, because it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of what they would, you would say in English, the bait and switch, where, you know, in, in, in Russia, we've seen in the last year, year and a half, two years, uh, these protests around uh, landfills, right? And it's, it's interesting that you point this out, that it, you know, and maybe you can talk about this, both of you can talk about this a bit more, is, is how those landfills are being transferred to other areas, you know, maybe amongst populations that are either less population or populations that aren't organized enough to, to um, you know, resist them. Yeah, um, basically the country is, is pretty big and in different places uh, have um, a different um, a, a density of people. So uh, once uh, there is a protest in, in Moscow region, for example, we've seen a number of cases here. Uh, the, the Moscow city government uh, was trying, it was kind of a very big case in Russia three years ago, I think, three or two years ago. They tried to move the... Um, and the stuff out to, to, to the north at Hangilsk region. Uh, it's, uh, in, my, in my view, it was just by chance a few people, local people, see, see the kind of uh, the rubbish coming from the Moscow, even not the rubbish, but the intention of the rubbish coming to their backyard. They kind of, no, no way, no way, <laughs> get out. And it, it attracted attention, attracted activists from uh, different regions, media attention, and it took time. Uh, but finally, uh, the, the local people won. But the stuff didn't disappear, that's my point. They will yeah. move it somewhere where people uh, wouldn't protest. The neighboring region to Moscow, uh, it's all there still. I would say that, um, as Konstantin rightly mentioned, um, uh, Russia's population is very unequally distributed among many regions. And we have some hyper-regions like Moscow, which produces one-fifth of all household waste in Russia. And um, like one of the reasons for waste protests was the fact that uh, until, say, five years ago, Moscow was surrounded by a reen of landfills. And now, because there are more and more people moving to Moscow, uh, there's more and more housing construction taking place around Moscow. And more and more people realize, just like out of their window in their newly bought apartments, they can actually see or smell um, the waste landfill just next to them. And what happens? They start protesting and then they block the roads. And then uh, I believe once even President Vladimir Putin came there and he ordered to close that landfill. But then what happens? All other landfills become or fulfilled with waste. And then Moscow government started making arrangements with other less populated regions to take Moscow waste out there with the railroad. I believe in the US, you also have similar examples when large cities bring their waste, various kinds of waste to other states, which buy it, right? So, um, and that surprisingly provoked a number of regional conflicts. The most famous one was the one in Chies in Arkhangelsk. So yeah, you have this. 
But then uh, it's not only about this, say, construction sector of Moscow, which produces a lot of also construction waste, is sometimes taking this waste out to the neighboring region just illegally. And there are a lot of illegal landfills, not only legal, but illegal landfills where they literally drop it elsewhere. Um, so, um, yeah, there's a lot about regional imbalances and... Um, um, that I believe is a very distinct factor in, um, in environmental activism in Russia, because if very often, especially when we speak about regional conflicts, um, it's also, there's also a social component to it. There's also a very distinct component of inequality in it because people living there, especially if they realize that most of the resources in the region, uh, are bringing, the bulk of Russian federal budget and still they get not that much from it or they also have like they have the feeling that they're uh, the capital or like Russian companies sometimes also international companies but like people from elsewhere it can be a Russian company but owned by someone who lives in London or elsewhere and that they these people are benefiting uh, from their resources and what do they get in return waste from those areas. Uh, it's not fun at all. So, um, yeah. So from my experience, there's also a lot to do with the issues of inequality, regional inequality and, um, social issues. Yeah. Just probably a small point. Yeah. Uh, we, we need to be dialectic here. Basically, uh, these local uh, conflicts and local situation when people can really see what, what, what's happening with, with the waste yeah, and with the nature response. They activate people, and that's good. We need to activate a lot of people, and that's how it's going to happen, basically, because people can't get worried, or not not too many people can get worried about what's happening in Africa or what's going to happen in 10, 20, 50 years' time. It's a very small proportion of people can, can do it, basically. But once uh, kind of thousands of people see the dump, nature responds, we activate thinking and then action. Some of the people in, in being active in local protests will see the bigger picture. Not uh, overnight, but uh, we'll, we'll do it. And that's how we kind of build up a, kind of a bigger uh, movement that, that address a bigger picture and a bigger challenge. I'd, li I'd like to talk about the, the, the Russian government's response to, to the environment and ecology. Constantine, you, you stated that you had uh, relation, you worked with the city government. So I'd like, I'd like you to focus, you know, to tell us about that experience. Like, how does Moscow, the city of Moscow, deal with, you know, some of the problems that Angelina and you and Angelina have po pointed to in terms of this, you know, rapid urbanization and construction? Uh, for the last uh, few years, uh, we, we can see instances when the top officials of the Moscow city government try and try to show that they take care of the environment. So they've got kind of, they see the challenge, even sometimes climate change. Uh, city of Moscow is a member of C40 association, it's of the biggest city, but the kind of commit to fight climate change, but in reality they do nothing. They do nothing. There is no notion, uh, no notion in law or in kind of in minds of top official of ecological footprint. Sometimes in uh, in, in few minds, probably carbon footprint, but nothing. 
so there is no action, serious, I mean. Angeline, what about your experience and what you've noticed in terms of, or your opinion of how the Russian government deals with, with ecology? Well, it's it's a very large question. It would probably take me another hour and a half to give a <laughs> presentation about it. Um, I would say, um, well, they're trying to do something. They obviously see uh, that this topic is important in many respects because it's important for it's getting more and more important for the Russian general public, but also because it's uh, getting more important globally, and um, so they are trying to do something. There are a number of reforms of environmental legislation taking part in Russia and um, from introduction of the best available technologies to changes in the forestry code or from the waste reform to uh, reforms in um, regulations about environmental information and environmental pollutants. So I believe they, um, so the government is trying to do something. and uh, I would not say that everyone there is evil and they're not doing anything and they'll just want to make things worse. No. But um, do we have um, certain achievements and how we can evaluate these achievements? That's now not a very easy question. Because on one hand, yes, there are attempts. Uh, we are not moving uh, very ambitiously in any of the directions. Sometimes things happen, like sometimes say, industrial pollution falls because of the closing industries. Sometimes um, air quality becomes better in cities uh, because they change coal for natural gas. This is what happens and what happened in many cities across Russia because they view natural gas as a transition fuel, uh, thinking that it's much cleaner in terms of air quality, but less cleaner, well, not that much better uh, well, a bit better, but it's still a, um, a climate, um, something which um, contributes to the climate change. However, they th- mostly think locally and uh, they're trying to invest a lot into natural gas. This is what happened in Moscow, by the way, and many other cities when they switched their energy gener- generation and co-generation, meaning generating energy and heating at the same time on natural gas. And this is why... Um, uh, air quality could have improved in, in a number of cities. Um, in some of the cities, they're also trying to regulate uh, mobility policy and, say, introduce paid parking, uh, support car-sharing schemes, support bike-sharing schemes. And some somewhere it works. Uh, well, I would probably bring an example. Like, Moscow is a very wealthy city, which has a lot of money. And uh, uh, from my experience of someone living elsewhere... I find the bike-sharing city system pretty good. I use it when I come to Moscow. But then it's heavily subsidized by the city and they can do it because Moscow has money for it. And um, likewise, another example was that they've changed all public buses for buses working on um, uh, electricity, so electrobuses. But here, once again, they were so expensive and they were so heavily criticized by many experts because it was like super expensive. Um, Here is once again a question. Yeah. Um, So I would say in short that uh, there are attempts to change the situation. There are attempts to uh, listen to people. But then there are so many actors in every particular topic. So sometimes things don't work because of corruption. 
Sometimes things don't work because the government thinks, oh, it's too complicated. We got to just find or establish one company which will be dealing with this issue and give everything to this company. Because they think it's easier than managing many independent stakeholders. And then that company, for example, is being made responsible for incineries, which are due to appear across many regions in Russia, and there are public protests against it. So likewise, even when we look at renewable energy, which is developing very slowly, but it's still developing, we see that it's mostly concentrated in the hands of uh, large companies, say um, a daughter company of the state energy or nuclear energy company, Rosatom, or a daughter company of another Russian state uh, high technology company. So it's like, it's also about how many actors are allowed in, do we allow competition or do we think it's always safer to govern everything from the state? Yeah. And then on the other hand, the state is also not a superpower. Uh, the state does not control everything. I'm usually the one uh, who says at various international panels, like everything you've read about uh, this uh, vertical uh, line of power in Russia, it's just not there. And the more you if the more you travel across region, the more you realize how complicated regional, but also federal political systems are. Uh, the various bodies of the government are under huge pressure from other very important actors, be it large um, business powers, be it regional powers, like various actors. So it's a very complicated system, uh, which is not very easy to put on paper or in a presentation or in three minutes in a very distinct narrative. Okay, those are the good guys, those are the bad guys. That's the picture. And now it's not like that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just two quick points. Um, uh, I, I see no reason to be that optimistic. Um, Angelina is trying to be, I understand uh, why. We, we all need some, some optimism, even me. Um, number one point. Um, this kind of discussion that we have now in Russia and, and action um, um, had been seen in Europe for about 25, uh, 30 years. Um, yeah, there has been discussion, action, protests, uh, and action. But at the same time, over the last 25, 30 years, the uh, emission grew uh, 60%. That's the discussion and reality. Um, number two point, uh, we don't have that big um, ecological footprint of a of an average Russian citizen as, as Americans do. Uh, ours is about 5.7, whereas in, in US about twice that much. Uh, at the same time, and, and Moscow has uh, plus 30%, about 7.5 uh, global hectares. It, it's measured in, in global hectares. Nobody takes care. Um, and I'll give you kind of quick example. Uh, we are looking very closely now what's, what's going to happen to climate and ecological emergency bill in the UK. It's probably most advanced legal story in, in uh, globally. Um, and what they do, basically, they um, make the government be responsible for, for the totality of the environment basically, for the, for the total uh, carbon and ecological footprint. Now, there is a kind of understandable resistance, but that's how we're going to, to do it. Because we need to see the picture in totality and control 
uh, the total emission and not, not only emission, the, the whole ecological footprint. Uh, we are nowhere close to that kind of bill in Russia. Nowhere close. Angelina, sorry. Yeah, we, we need to work on that. And that's why we, <laughs> you do what you do. And that's why I'm on the streets, sometimes in jail. Because we need to move on and pretty quickly the situation is urgent. We can't just talk for years and years. We don't have it. You know, Konstantin, you've, you've brought up a, repeatedly brought up a really important issue. And that is, you know, when, and I'll use myself for an example, right? The environment, my relationship with the environment is, is based around what I can see, right? The where I live. Uh, and I could learn about, you know, or read about uh, environmental catastrophe in another part of the United States, but it's it's a very abstract thing. It, it's the problem that you're pointing to is trying to wrap one's sense around the totality of the problem. So my question is, is and this goes to, to you first, Angelina, since you are a journalist who is trying to bring attention through your journalism, but also, Constantine, through your activism, what are some of the challenges of, of communicating that message that, you know, of the urgency of the reality of the ecological crisis in, in Russia and, and even outside of Russia. Yeah, yeah. My take is, and it's, it's very close to Extinction Rebellion strategies, that um, we, we can't have hope that everybody on, on the globe will understand what's happening and take action personally. And voluntarily. Our strategy is that a small group of people, small proportion of people, but a lot bigger than we have now, will press the government to press everyone else to live within the limit. That's how, in my view, it's going to happen. We need a pretty big group of people, probably two to five percent, and reasonably comfortable the rest of the community that they understand, they they don't want to act, they're reluctant to change, especially voluntarily, but they will take the action uh, of the government more or less, okay, we'll, we'll have to do it, but not personally. Well, I've been someone who's um, has been trying to write about these topics for quite a number of years, and I remember even back in 2008, 2009, when I was trying to write... Uh, about environmental um, issues, I was faced with a lot of, well, I would not say criticism, but just somehow that it was far too idealistic to write about these topics. Because this was something that people, uh, I mean, on one hand worried about, on the other hand, they felt like other issues were far more pressing. Um, I would say that attitude has changed. Um, Maybe it has changed predominantly in the bubble around me, which is always the risk. Um, on the other hand, um, the more I travel across Russia and the more I speak to people I don't know, and that happens sometimes, uh, the more reaction I get uh, that how important environmental issues are. Say 10 years ago, when I was speaking, say, to a hairdresser or to a taxi driver, just saying, yes, I'm someone who writes about environmental issues, they would be like, ah, oh, it's something about Greenpeace or it's something about like, yeah. Nowadays, they all start telling me their stories over an environmental conflict or environmental cause I should be writing about. They say, look, I have a dutcher somewhere 200 kilometers away from Moscow or St. Petersburg, and they're going to uh, cut down a forest, a really precious old forest to build new cottages for uh, wealthy customers. Can you write about it? And uh, like they keep reading these stories. So 
it's uh, I saw this change. I saw this change in um, perception of environmental topics. But as you rightly said in the beginning, Sean, I would also say it's mostly local. It's very local uh, stories and it's very local causes that people are worried about. Now, if we start speaking about more global issues like climate change, like the ones Constantine mentioned earlier, um, the awareness for that um, is still not that high as in many other uh, parts of the world. It's I would also say it's slowly growing. It's slowly increasing, both because um, more media report on it, more uh, social media, um, like activists are writing about it, uh, bloggers, um, um, messengers groups, uh, regional groups and social media, like that dedicate more um, of their content and time uh, also to an, to an issue of climate change. So, um, but then um, people really only speak about it when they observe strange weather uh, or they uh, experience a natural catastrophe like wildfires or a flood or something like this. And then they, they start talking about it, that maybe it's the climate change. Um, so here I would also be cautiously optimistic saying um, it's slowly growing. It's, um, I don't know who to compare Russia to, but uh, yeah, Constantine would probably be more pessimistic, but I saw his hand. Yeah, yeah I'm trying to, to be more realistic. Uh, you, you need to be um, as uh, realistic as you can when you pursue unrealistic stories. Uh, yeah, kind of not for profit. You, you need to be, you try to be more, more most efficient as you can. Yeah, now, quick, quick point, probably it's interesting and important. Yeah, there is a growing understanding that something wrong happening to, to the environment, to, to nature within Russian society. True. Um, there is a growing understanding that it's probably up to the humanity why it's happening. But the, uh, the, the, the next step and the next uh, factor is very different to what we see, well, in extreme in, in the UK, which is in the, in the front of the uh, climate fight, basically, climate change fight. Uh, well, yeah, it's in, uh, ecology is worsening. Yeah, we are responsible for that. But it doesn't mean I need to do something. I have to do something. I, I'm responsible to do something. And it's very, very much different to, to not, not all the British citizens, but, but, but to many. If something wrong, we are responsible. It, it, it means me. Probably the, the history of, uh, of empire, see the bigger picture, and take responsibility for what's happening in Australia, in India, in the States for a while. And, uh, act on that yeah in russia no it's up to the government it's up to the engineers uh, scientists um, journalists sometimes or crazy activists on the street it, it's not me people don't take it uh, to personally enough but and it, it, it it's not only with the kind of ecological crisis it's to to, to many other things what's happening on the streets even in the kindergarten not me. It's the bureaucrats, uh, somebody else, probably lunatics. No, not not me. I I think this is one of the and, and again here I'm speaking personally too. Like one of the big challenges of dealing uh, with environmental or ecolog ecological issues is that there the the largesse of the problem is in many respects disempowering, right? And, but Constantine, you're you're you know highly active in 
in activism. You know, you've carried out street protests. Talk about the, how do you, like, talk about your activism and, and, and how you're empowered or try to empower other people to take that responsibility that you're speaking about. Um, as I said, my understanding of the biggest problem is the level of understanding within the society and within the government. Because, uh, and it's tricky. At the same time, it's one of the biggest challenges uh, that humanity faced, that all of us faced. At the same time, it's not obvious yet, and it's not going to be obvious, especially in big countries like Russia, for a number of years at least. Yeah? We see consequences, uh, forest fires, everything. But still, it's, it's not obvious, and it's so big that you are disempowered. Uh, so to attract attention, but at the same time, we need to do something. If you <laughs> understood the story, you, you believe it's true, because you, you, you can act like that on, 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 the, on the truth. It's not the hypothesis. You, you need to take it as a truth. I may be wrong. Many people may be wrong. It, it, it's all fine. We can be optimistic, but it's my choice. It's personal choice to take it as a 100% true. Uh, then how, how you do it? How do you increase awareness? Yeah, you need to do strange things. Um, that's the strategy of Extinction Rebellion. That's why I joined, joined that, uh, basically. And strange things, even um, for different people, uh, it, it's different. For me, being with the history of public official, you know, from the top of the, the Moscow city government, Minister of Economy, even being on the street is strange for all my, my colleagues, uh, friends, etc. Yeah, I, I had a call like uh, half a year ago from my a former colleague from the Moscow city government say, yeah, uh, we, we saw you on the kind of Tverskaya street, in the middle of the, uh, of the street, just um, in front of the moving cars. Uh, we are stunned. Like, uh, you were sitting in the, uh, in the town hall, and now you're on the street. Tell us what's happening. Uh, yeah, yeah. And when you do strange things, uh, basically it's, uh, it's media attention. It's attention of uh, other activists. Because uh, my, my activity, my, my protest, they, they focus not on the general public. For, for them, I'm crazy, J just crazy. Yeah, they don't see the picture. They, uh, there is no history of uh, civil disobedience in Russia. So it's, uh, yeah, we always have, especially in spring, uh, crazy people going around, moving around. So it, it's uh, my activity is focused on pretty limited uh, group of people, my friends. So that way, take it seriously. Our activists, uh, uh, and uh, there are two focus um, kind of points. Number one, um, different activists. I, I kind of uh, I, I tell them what we need to focus on, like, like the picture in totality, not on the local. Uh, so what we need to kind of uh, to see as an objective, as a goal. What kind of demands we need to put forward? And number two focus is uh, how we act because uh, we still have, uh, as, as we have uh, have had in in Europe, like petitions, um, like peaceful demonstrations, all that stuff. Letters to the members of the parliaments. It, it, it's all well. It's, it's okay, but it's not going to save us. Basically, we need to be disruptive, useful but disruptive, and kind of attract as much attention as we, as we can. Uh, to do that, uh, the only way to do that, basically, uh, to do it. <laughs> if you want people to be on the street, you go to the street. And at some point, uh, someone will join you. 
yeah, yeah, we need to see the bigger picture, and I see it. And okay, I'll go to prison with you. It's fine. It's uh, it's serious enough to pay that price. Angelina, what is your assessment of of you know? And this is kind of how I came to this more knowledgeable of this subject in Russia is just seeing. You know these little pockets of activism all over the country. What is your assessment of of the the activists and activism that's going around around the ecology? Well, I see that kind of activism appearing in various forms, and um, I somehow it's probably once again my bubble, but somehow almost everyone is around me is doing amazing things. Sometimes really people dedicate so much of their time, efforts, and money and energy into civil activism. That can be, I don't know, everything from, well, like what Constantine has described uh, to uh, a very local campaign or a very local cause. I uh, remember that, um, actually, I recently wrote that analysis of the uh, Russian uh, grassroots environmental activism. And um, for that analysis, I um, I came up with the following classification, which I'll probably also mention here. And uh, like I feel like around me, also across various regions in Russia, I see groups who are like purely protest groups, and uh, like many of them do that uh, because of the local cause. Uh, then we also see groups who are um, are trying to promote something that can be sustainable consumption, that can be like sharing economy, that can be recycling. So, and some of them even do that. Um, like if there's municipal infrastructure for recycling, like in, they're trying to do that with their own hands. Um, then um, there are also groups who are trying to, like I call them watchdogs, they're trying to um, control how public money is being spent on environmental measures or they're demanding information or like environmental information, information about air quality, water quality. And then there are also uh, like groups like Konstantin has mentioned, Extension Rebellion and Fridays for Future Russia. They're relatively new to this context. Um, and uh, But I believe they're also very important because in many ways, uh, what they do and how they work is really new to the Russian context. They're also really new to the, to, um, well, more or less traditional over the last few years context of uh, hyperlocal environmental activism. So I see various kinds of group appearing and working. They're very different. They're very hard to get classified, even though I tried. And finally, you know, you both are involved, but have also mentioned that Russia is part of a, a global crisis, and there is a global, you know, movement, for the lack of a better term, that maybe isn't as networked as it should be. But you know, Constantine, as part of Extinction Rebellion, this is a this is an international organization. Um, Angelina, if you you participated in a, you're a member of a couple of international organizations. So, can you place Russia because? From my vantage point, when when uh, the climate crisis, just as an example, is spoken about, it's Russia isn't usually part of the conversation on on my end, uh, particularly here in the United States. It's you know China or India or even the United States itself. So can you place Russia both in terms of its its contribution to the crisis, both in trying to deal with it, but also in causing it, and activists and their connections to a more international, you know, movement of sorts. Uh, Constantine, why don't you start? 
my take is that uh, Russia is not going to be the number one in the front, uh, front line uh, ecological uh, crisis um, fight, but probably not not the last one. Um, because of the history, because of the size, uh, many reasons. Uh, we'll have to follow what's happening around the globe for, for a number of reasons. Basically, we are all interconnected, uh, first of all, uh, economically. For example, we've got a, a growing discussion uh, in, and within the big companies that uh, European Union is going to introduce uh, carbon tax. It, it's going to change. No, not quickly, but but still going to impact what's happening in Russia. And uh, my 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 stake is that uh, that some Russians uh, will be uh, in growing numbers joining the movement. So kind of internal process in different forms. I agree with Angelina. Different people have different contexts, and it it everything can help. Uh, so. Probably the combination of the two will kind of will place Russia somewhere in between the line of the front lines and the backgrounds. Um, and uh, I've got an interesting idea. Maybe maybe for you, I'll try to describe it. Uh, probably a couple of months ago, I saw an extract of the speech of, of our president, uh, Mr. Putin, and he was kind of saying, probably first time for me, that we need to take it seriously like ecological crisis and uh, climate change uh, and probably try to think or to start thinking about the, the decrease of the consumption which is very uh, kind of seriously connected with, with the impact uh, on the environment. Uh, I think that it could be quite a different course of that uh, kind of speech and that, that, that approach. Economically, Russia can't grow. In this political uh, context, uh, in, in political situation that, that you have in Russia, they can't grow the economy. There is no way. Because uh, entrepreneurship is limited, uh, limited freedom, etc., etc. At the same time, you promise sometimes um, better and better life, and uh, there are always expectations from the people that will change for better. But uh, over the last few years, uh, we, we do change, but, but not for the better. <laughs> so it could be kind of new, uh, new story, but we need to, we've got to kind of tie up our, our belts just because of the environment. Whereas, whereas they can't help, uh, they can't get uh, the, the economy grow. Uh, but to find a good reason, for example, like Crimea. Crimea was the reason for, for us to kind of uh, to see the uh, economy reducing. But at the same time, people take it. People take it. So um, uh, my stake is Russia is going to be somewhere in the middle. Uh, Angelina, you recently wrote an article for Reuters about the R Russian government's response to John Kerry uh, being appointed to the... Um, in environmental council for the United States. I can't remember which one, but nonetheless, this was an area that uh, in your article, at least the Russian government felt that this is an area they could work with the United States on. So can, same for you. What is your take on the Russia's place in the international system? Well, um, this is what, at least what they've been saying, like various Russian officials have been saying this um, formally, informally in my articles elsewhere for the last 
what, five years, six years, since 2014, I've been hearing that, that um, international cooperation in the area of environment and climate uh, is certainly something which should be continued, uh, no matter how bad relationships are in other areas, because it's for the global good and because it's something where countries can still talk. And um, I can also relate to that from another experience, like regularly going to the UNFCCC meetings. I have to tell you, this is where countries which do not normally speak, and here I don't mean Russia, just other countries, they speak there, they meet there. And sometimes also meeting at such like neutral grounds, they talk about other things. And, um, and it's probably not bad from my opinion. It's not bad that it's happening. So um, just today, there was another uh, very large scale event on Russia's future carbon climate and decarbonization policy. And there, Russian officials mentioned it again, that yeah, it's like, we will continue. We're interested in doing this. And um, I got the same um, uh, reply from the American officials, the ones I spoke to about this topic, and from the European officials. Well, sometimes this cooperation uh, lines um, and tracks are somewhat limited by other aspects and other uh, political sectors, but sometimes it works. And um, if that track would be working, I feel like it's still good. But then uh, we also also find it wrong if we limit uh, such kind of cooperation only to politicians. It shouldn't be like this. It's not only politicians living on this planet. And I believe it's super important to develop various kinds of cooperation, like city to city, um, businesses to businesses, people to people, activists to activists, movements to movements, and talk about many topics. I remember at the climate conference, I once met um, uh, like um, climate experts from from the US, from like from the East Coast, who are actually fighting against um, like um, in addition to their like climate expertise and their climate activity, they've been fighting against the local polluting industry, which was just next to next to the house in in Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken, and. Um, and that experience was so relevant to experience of so many Russian activists. Also, again, you know, for such a local cause. And he was telling again how the company um, which was running the uh, enterprise, like it looked so good on the climate level because they said all the right things and they established all the right climate targets. But in terms of like air pollution uh, for the local communities, uh, which were not super wealthy, uh, they were not so good and they didn't look so good. And uh, there was such an amazing story. And I felt like, wow, this is like so relevant. And um, so, yeah, activists on um, various forms, but also scientists, researchers. I mean, there are various kinds of difficulties coming to US-Russia cooperation in these days. And I find it from various sides and I find it not right. I find it... Uh, like we always need to talk, uh, we need to talk to everyone. And um, maybe if I, in my personal capacity, can contribute to that in any way, um, I do that because I find that important. That was Konstantin Falken and Angelina Davidova. Angelina Davidova is an expert on international and Russian climate and environmental policies, civil society movements, and media. 
She's a director of the St. Petersburg-based NGO, Office of Environmental Information. She's also an environmental and climate journalist and regularly contributes to Russian and international media. Davidova has also served as an observer with the UN climate negotiations since 2008 and is a member of the Global Reference Group and World Future Council. Konstantin Folken is an entrepreneur, the CEO of Russian National Business Angels Association, and a climate and environmental activist with Extinction Rebellion. Since 2016, he's led or carried out more than 150 street actions, four hunger strikes, and has been arrested 19 times. That has resulted in seven jail sentences totaling 81 days. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.